Well, today I'd like to welcome David Wiley to the podcast. David Wiley is the founder and managing partner of Hilltop Residential, a real estate investment company guided by a set of core values. David has been in the business since 2000, has been involved in over 15 billion in multifamily transactions. David, welcome. Kevin, thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Oh, I really appreciate it. It's always great to have friends and general partners that we're used to doing business with join us on the podcast, uh, especially because we already have a good knowledge of your business and what you do and how you interact with your investors. But today is more about sharing that with uh, a broader audience uh, beyond just our client base. And so if you would just give us a short history on David Wiley, your background, how you ended up at Hilltop and what you're doing today. Great. Well, again, thanks for having me and appreciate what you guys do. I've been in the business, like you said, since 2000. I started out for almost 20 years as a broker. Um, all I did every day, all day was finance, sell, capitalize, uh, market, um, underwrite uh, apartments, uh, multifamily across uh, Texas predominantly. But our, our platform was national and had a lot of influence and relationships and did a lot of business nationally as well. You know, over that period, we were getting to know every owner, every operator, every buyer, every seller. And helping them solve, you know, problems of financing and capitalizing and buying and selling apartments and and hopefully providing some value to them. Uh, got to know the business really well and loved it and started investing with a very few of my clients, uh, usually those that were operators that were hands-on and and really enjoyed that side of the business. We sold our, our company. It was called ARA. Um, we sold ARA to Cantor Fitzgerald in 2014. And um, I went to Greg Finch, who's my partner at Hilltop, and he was with another <clears throat> platform that he had started and and um, grown substantially and kind of hit hit uh, I would say peak performance. But they were at a great point in their in their business life. I said, Greg, I want to invest more with you, and he said, Hey, why don't we start Hilltop? And so we we started raising money and we bought our first assets in 2017. Uh, to date, we're Roughly just, you know, we purchased about $2 billion in multifamily, 42 assets, I should say. And um, we're about 240 employees strong. We um, started our management company a couple of years after that. So it's been a really fun ride and uh, excited to talk more about it. Well, great. Wonderful. Well, for those listening who may not understand what multifamily investments are, if you could just give a brief history of, of investing in apartment complexes is generally what we're talking about with multifamily. Um, and then talk about, you know, what is that type of investing and how do you do it? Sure. I mean, what we do is we invest in, we call it value add uh, multifamily, which is apartments and value add can be operational or it can be physical. And, and we're usually buying assets that are anywhere you know, from 20 to 30 years old to brand new. And we're, we're buying broken deals. So we're trying to, uh, we're not, we're not buying from great operators. We're not buying, you know, assets that are in uh, perfect condition in that marketplace. We like to buy something that's broken and fix it. And so multifamily investing can look, can look in, you know, a lot of different ways. Some people buy value add, some people buy what, what it's called in the market core plus, uh, which, which means, Usually a little bit newer asset with a little bit less work to do and a and maybe a a little bit more of an infill or a close in location to use a, a very basic term. And then some people like to buy core and and that means the best of the best product and the best of the best locations. There is a, a risk and return kind of differential across that spectrum. So value add, we think 
with our leverage point, uh, which is very low for the market, uh, provides the best risk-adjusted returns um, in that space. So we're usually in the 60 to 65% leverage range, and you'll see core and core plus investors somewhere in the 40 to 55% leverage range, and an investor will get you know appropriate returns. From our point of view, the best risk-adjusted return is in that value-add space, and and um, you know we feel like we can really move the needle when we buy a broken deal and and fix it and operate it. Last thing I'll say is the formula has always been for us and and myself that I've witnessed. If you if you buy an asset properly, uh, meaning you don't overpay, and you leverage it appropriately, meaning you have conservative leverage, um, and you man you manage it with expertise uh, as an operator. Um, you know, it's a very safe, secure singles and doubles type investment product. People get in trouble in any space with too much leverage. Um, and people get in trouble in any space where they're not an expert as an operator. And they're they're asking someone else to solve their problems. And so those are things that we focus on. Um, and that formula has stood the test of time. Great. Well, I think you hit on one point that we have quite a bit of conversation with our investors today, and that is a term that we didn't hear much until rates began to rise, and that's negative leverage. And you were you were adjusting, you I mean you were talking about that during your last piece in terms of buying your properties right. But if you could explain negative leverage uh, to the audience and then talk about what Hilltop does in their process to avoid being in a situation like that. Yeah, and I I really talk about too much leverage as a I'm I'm less concerned about negative leverage. They're uh, being over leveraged, in my opinion, is a bigger problem than being in a negative leverage position. Negative leverage doesn't always concern us if we have a plan. In other words, if you're buying a property that is in trouble, it's going to be very low occupied and being poorly operated. Then you know going in that your your cap rate, which is a metric that we use, that you're basically your NOI divided by your purchase price um, and your your net operating income is going to have a, a direct you know correlation to your occupancy and, and the revenue. And so if your cap rate is lower than your interest rate, that's the technical term of negative leverage. Mm-hmm. That part doesn't really bother us because we are buying broken deals. And a lot of times there might not be much of a cap rate because we are fixing a problem and we're looking maybe at year one or year two. Um, and then you look at the long-term through the hold of the asset, you're in a positive leverage territory. Um, and that's our goal. And then you have positive returns, right? Um, but what I was talking about really was being over leveraged and, mm. and and having too much risk in your, your loan to value ratio. So in our opinion, 75, 80% leverage is aggressive, but that also that always depends on somebody's capital and what, what position they're in and what kind of backstops they have in place. For us, uh, we are stewards of our investors' capital, and we like to have lots of coverage on our loans and lots of safety nets and lots of protection. And so we're in that 60 to 65% range where if something goes wrong, we're, we still feel very comfortable. The market can get overheated, and you can invest with somebody that puts on 75 or 80% leverage, and then they go um, with very aggressive assumptions, and, and they're, you might call it... Uh, inexperienced or careless in their underwriting and the market turns against them. I'll give you a perfect example of a, of a risk that we're seeing right now uh, is floating rate debt. Mm-hmm. Um, we buy a, uh, if we, if we have a floating rate loan, we buy a, a hedge or a cap on that loan. And we're very con, con, uh, conservative with that assumption. 
Well, we just bought a property that was foreclosed upon and it was foreclosed upon because there was a overly aggressive owner that over leveraged his loan with a floating rate and did not buy an interest rate hedge. And when that, when the rate started to move against that borrower, uh, they lost the property. They couldn't afford to make their debt service. So the, the bank foreclosed and then we bought it from the bank. And so those are the kinds of broken deals we like to buy when someone else messes up their leverage and, uh, and their execution. And that's the a very long-winded explanation of of leverage and risk and negative leverage versus over leverage. Yeah, for sure. You know, you talked earlier about, you know, the the type of value add. And I know certainly interest rate risk is just one risk of investing in multifamily, but overall real estate for the history of mankind has been fairly seen as a store of value. Uh, how do you, you know, leveraging that on a low uh, loan to value basis is one way to preserve that value. But in general, how do your investors and how does the team at Hilltop, does it view it as an income uh, source or does it view it as a store of value or a combination of all? I think the answer is a combination of all. I mean, we're, we're a, as I was saying, we're very conservative. Our leverage is very conservative. We, we like to say that it, our product is a asset appreciation, wealth preservation, and cash flowing product. We historically have seen cash flow averaging, you know, somewhere between seven and eight percent. Um, you get years when it's a little bit lower, like like it is right now with rates a little bit higher, and you get you get years where it's better than that. And the appreciation side and the preservation side is very real. And you know, you're probably depending on the investor and where their focus is. Some people want to focus more on multiple and long term, and some people like to focus on cash flow. But everybody wants preservation. And, mm -hmm. and we believe and, and have experienced over time that our industry with proper leverage achieves all those goals. Wonderful. Wonderful. We talked a little bit about operational value add, but physical value add too. I think finding those older properties that just haven't been well cared for, bringing them up to speed. Tell us what are the very strong actual physical value add things that you can do? Because I mean, there's one thing putting stainless appliances in people say it's a value add. I think in some markets it becomes an expectation depending on where your property is, so on and so forth. But what do you typically see as the really strong value add that's going into your properties today? Yeah, we try to buy in solid uh, school districts and with in, in areas with good demographics and we like to buy the property that might be performing at the middle or the bottom of that of that good market. So, um, and then we want to we want to bridge the gap between the bottom or the mid market deal and the top of the market deal, but we don't want to do so in a way that we um, are the you know the the highest ticket price in the market. Um, and and so the way we do that is typically through operations, which we'll talk about, but also through physical. It's the obvious. Low-hanging fruit would be kitchens, bathrooms, amenities, and common areas. And so uh, it would be going into a older apartment. And when I say older, it, it usually is 10 to 20 years old compared to a brand new one. And replacing countertops, cabinets, flooring um, in the in interior of the units and bringing those more up to speed with the market. And you might not go to the top of the market standard. Right now, for example, everybody's doing courts. Well, we do granite and it's still a great product and you you might still stay $150 below the top of the market that has quartz. Um, but when you started, you were $400 below that, that property. And so mm -hmm. 
Then we'll go in and we'll do fitness centers. We'll do swimming pools. We'll add in uh, Amazon lockers if, if needed, if it's in demand in that market. Those are the kind of common area things we do. Those are all probably the lowest hanging fruit on the physical side. Um, occasionally someone will have a property where there's a, where there's an exterior deficiency. Um, and, you know, I should say inefficiency in a market where there's a glaring problem, um, on the exterior of the building. Uh, and maybe it's not a problem, but it's a physical eyesore traffic doesn't like to stop in because the landscaping's terrible because the paint color is dated, uh, because they need a new roof and, and all those things, you know, you might look at and, and fix as well. So those are the lowest hanging, you know, fruit. Well, looking at all those changes, there's quite a bit on, I, I think, in the multifamily and, and really in real estate now with our interest rate environment facing the industry as a whole. Uh, I think it's a an era that we haven't seen. Uh, I think you've been in it long enough to remember what rates at this level were like. Looking forward, just given technology, given the rapid pace of change and things in many, many industries, what do you view the future of investing in real estate to be? I'll say um, we we were very thankful, and I, I wish I could tell you it was by design, but it was you know a, a major blessing to be in this industry that has a a great liquidity source in the government sponsored entities like Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. Mm -hmm. uh, right now, those that are trying to buy and sell in the office market, for example, are either doing seller financing or really really expensive loans, and so cap rates in this world are upwards of nine percent in the office space. We have great liquidity in our markets, and, and as a result, cap rates have remained low. Um, and remember, cap rate, for just as a review, is a metric that is the net operating income divided by the purchase price. It's a metric we use as a kind of a rate of return. And so, you know, office cap rates are a lot higher, and, and, and a lot of the other industries, asset classes, I should say, have higher cap rates because they don't have the liquidity of Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. And so right now, what's going on in the liquidity environment, just in the banking world right now, there is money is being sucked out of our of our economy. And as a result, it's harder and harder for people to finance deals. So as long as we have the liquidity that we have in the multifamily market, it's an extremely attractive space. And the other you know, major just glaring topic that people observe in our world is people have to have a place to live. We've seen sort of the volatility in the office world with work from home and flexible workspaces. And, and we've seen, you know, the, the retail world have its, you know, uh, volatility with, with Amazon and um, e-commerce. Industrial estate pretty secure and multifamily estate pretty secure. Um, we've even seen hospitality with COVID and what that did to that industry and, and kind of the, the, the perceived risk in the hospitality world and, and the volatility mm -hmm. there when you have a doubt you know, a down economy. You always have to have a place to live. And because of the, the shorter term of our leases, um, there's a, a hedge against inflation. You know, you have, you have units turning over every month. And we've always said in apartments, you can control your occupancy with your rent levels. Hmm. Uh, and so again, it's another reason to underwrite conservatively and leverage conservatively. So we're not trying to hit home runs. You know, we're trying to hit singles and doubles so we can afford to have 60% leverage and, and be conservative in how we you know, business plan and underwrite a deal. So that's a, a long-winded way of saying, I think the space, the multifamily space is very secure. We've got great liquidity and we have great demand. You know, it's never been more expensive. I shouldn't say never, but it, in the last 20 years, it, it hasn't been this expensive to try to buy a home. Yeah, And that's both in principal and interest and also just purchase price. And we're seeing a lot of, of um, we're still seeing a lot of momentum across our portfolio and across the market on the on the rental space. 
We also know that costs are high. So to build new apartments, to build new single family homes is getting more and more difficult and more and more expensive. Fundamentally, the multifamily space is in a really good spot. And as an investment grade asset with the liquidity advantage that we have with Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, we also feel you know very very fortunate, and um, you know we we believe it it really speaks to the the nature of the space and it's and why the cap rates are where they are. Well, and I think so that liquidity source and that backing of your the loan pool by the federal government makes a huge huge difference. But knowing that really cost of capital drives pretty much everything from valuation to rents and, and things along the way. A lot of uh, we'll call it chatter. A lot of people in the industry are talking about the tokenization of real estate. Now, for an industry like multifamily, where there's a constant demand, maybe that's not the first place where people go to do that. They try to tokenize something that's a little harder to transact in or something that's a little typically has a higher cost of capital. I mean, has that anything that comes across your board with the networks that you run in? I know you work with a lot of large organizations in the multifamily space and just curious to hear your thoughts on, you know, do you think that equity in multifamily or any type of real estate is going to hit tokenization anytime soon? I mean, look, the one thing that we have observed is there is a just an immense amount of capital um, in our space. Uh, amount of private equity but is, is, is one thing, but the institutional capital in our world is mm. mind-blowing. Um, we have worked really hard to maintain our advantage as an operator and a niche, kind of regionally focused niche investor. And, and that's how we've maintained our edge. Um, a lot of the institutions like to invest with groups like us because we have uh, better access to deal flow, and we're better operators, you just can't scale it. Mm. You know, I, I look at some of the bigger firms and they have advantage in buying power, but we have an advantage in operating and being an entrepreneur and ebbing and flowing and adjusting to the market quickly. And we have our principals involved in every meeting on every deal. Whereas you get in this larger environment with, with larger players um, and larger institutions, um, they're just very slow to move. However, we are, we are right now benefiting from most of those institutions are on the sidelines. They're not investing right now. And they weren't investing in 2020. Hmm. They're not always right. They're just always really slow to move. And so Interesting. Um, hmm. we are trying to buy right now because the market is so dislocated. Um, and we, we bought eight assets in 2020 that, that were great acquisitions as well. And so we try to be active, we kind of run into the fire. Tiger Woods has a great line, he says, uh, which all the golfers will appreciate. He says um, that he takes aggressive swings at conservative targets. And so, I mean, that's kind of what we're trying to do. We're trying to be ag aggressive with, you know, with conservative targets. And and the market in the institutional world uh, is very slow to return. But when they do, there is a lot of capital on the sidelines. So uh, we're we're very aware of that. And we're picking our spots very carefully. And that's just what you have to do as a, you know, a, a niche sort of regional operator. We, we look at ourselves as an expert and smaller uh, that can be a little bit more nimble. Yeah. And speaking of operational efficiency and, and ability to scale, we see a lot of deal flow come in from the single family housing groups that are putting these deals together. And for us to wrap our heads around, it's hard enough to manage it when all the doors are in one place, but when all the doors are scattered, we look at that and say that operation, it's, that has to be even more difficult because now you have every door has a different address, has a different tax bill, has a different so on and so forth. Right. What are you seeing in terms of, you know, institutional and private investors 
looking and comparing between your offering and something in the single family space? You know, I think uh, it was, well, it was a, a real buzz kind of buzzword and hot topic in the last probably three years. Um, some of the big boys, uh, Black, or, you know, Beery, Blackstone, et cetera, have been dumping a lot of capital into that space. And and look, they've, they have developed some efficiencies um, that have helped them. But we've looked at that space as well as single family rental, which is which is more of a multifamily product, but with larger, you know, larger units, usually in some cases detached, but in one location, mm. you know, they call some of it built to rent and single family rental. We look at that product as, um, again, we like to buy broken deals and it's a pretty new business um, with not a lot of history. And we are in our minds and and in our experience, a good operator, but we want to wait and learn from the market and see, you know, see what happens with, with some of those line items you described, like taxes, like property taxes, and and how uh, the operational side of the business is impacted by by those deals that get screwed up. And I, I don't know how else to say it. We we try to buy broken deals, so we're going to wait for the industry to teach us what one of those looks like when it's mm-hmm. broken. Um, we point. do, yeah, we do know we we do own a few assets that have like townhome units with garages, and it's very very attractive to the consumer. I mean, you can imagine if you have a larger floor plan. Um, even with some kind of a yard and a garage that's directly, a, you know, that's attached to your building, um, it's a very attractive product space. And so um, we we do have interest and we recognize, you know, how the consumer feels about it. But as a general approach, we're going to wait for some of those assets to be to become broken. And we we do agree that it's a really attractive space um, in the in the long term. Well, David, thanks for again for just stopping in today and hopping on the podcast, sharing your insights with us. If you could look in the future, ten years, and imagine what multifamily would be, what does it have to look like, or what do you think it should look like in order for Hilltop to have been very successful? Well, in our mind, success is is twofold. We we want to be good stewards of our investors' capital. We want to provide solid returns, um, above market returns. I'm, I'm not sure that the, the returns won't get squeezed down a bit over time because it is a crowded space. To date, it's still been very healthy. The, the space has been kind of in the mid to upper teens for a long time. For those that outperform and, and the institutions are in the, you know, kind of the lower to mid teens. But for us, success is we work hard to provide community. I mean, multifamily investment is an area where you can have a lot of impact in people's lives, mm-hmm. not only in your residence, but also in your in your team. Um, and so we work hard to provide community. We work hard to have a safe place for someone to live that they can be proud of, but that also is affordable. Um, and so we look at success as doing a great job of providing community and having an impact in our in our people's lives and in the return side of it. So for us to continue in this space, we want to feel that we can provide, you know, market plus returns and have an impact on our communities. And that means on the people that work for us and also the people that, that live with us, um, our residents. That's pretty simple, but it's really hard to, to execute. And we've got 240 employees today and, you know, we're working hard every day to recruit and train and maintain and be in the leadership development space. And that's very rewarding. And so as long as we feel like we can provide the outsized returns and have an impact in these, in these lives, then, you know, we'll be excited. Well, great. Well, I think as long as um, you continue to operate on your mission, guided by your faith and your core values, that I have no doubt that that will unfold for you and your group. So once again, thanks for joining David. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. 
Thank you for listening to the Uncorrelated Minds podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. For more information on the topics covered in this podcast, please visit the show notes page for links to further information at www.sinaceracapital.com. Sinacera Capital is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Sinacera and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. The information provided is for educational and information purposes only and does not constitute investment advice and it should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or offer to sell a security. It does not take into account any investor's particular investment objectives, strategies, tax status, or investment horizon. You should consult your attorney or tax advisor. All information has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy is not guaranteed. There is no representation or warranty as to the current accuracy, reliability, or completeness of, or liability for, decisions based on such information, and it should not be relied on as such. The views expressed in this commentary are subject to change based on market and other conditions. These documents may contain certain statements that may be deemed forward-looking statements. Please note that any such statements are not guarantees of any future performance, and actual results or developments may differ materially from those projected. Any projections, market outlooks, or estimates are based upon certain assumptions and should not be construed as indicative of actual events that will occur.